sanctification, miracles, and the science of why Jesus told stories. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Grab your party hats. It's the 10th episode of Ask Science Mike. We've hit the double digits, and it's all because of you. I want to thank everyone who submitted a question to the program or shared it with friends or rated it on iTunes or contributed through Patreon to make sure the show is financially viable. I couldn't do it without you. We have some fantastic questions this week, and thank you, ladies, for participating. (laughs) You answered the call. Let's get it started. Hey Science Mike, my name is Pat and I live in Honduras and I was wondering what your take is on miracles. And I guess when I say miracles, I mean any time that a scientific law of nature is intentionally broken. So something more than, oh, I I caught the bus this morning when I was running late, what a miracle. Um, The philosopher David Hume said, and I'm paraphrasing, here that scientific laws are basically little more than precise attempts to describe the way things have happened in the past and the correlations that are observed. But they are not binding causations on what will happen in the future, even if they are useful at predicting what will. So thus, for example, to say a ball dropped from two meters off the ground has always led to it falling to the ground in the past does not necessarily mean that it is the only possible outcome for the next. It could, for example, float in the air, like a man walking on water. The fact that we have always observed it one way does not mean that there cannot be an exception to the law, in air quotes. So, what would you say to the idea that science itself, while wonderful, cannot disprove the exceptions that we might sometimes call the divine? Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. If we look at miracles as any time the laws of physics are intentionally broken, then we can't say a miracle has ever occurred because we don't have a properly recorded instance wherein the laws of physics have been broken. It's never happened. (laughs) And so we can't have a scientific belief about that. We don't have scientific documentation for contemporary miracles and Ancient miracles are from human accounts and produce conflicting, contradictory claims. There were lots of uh, claims to miracles performed by deities in and around the time of Christ, for example. Uh, so how do we decide that you know the New Testament is the trustworthy document and other mythologies are not? Well, scientifically, we don't. <laughs> you know, Such extraordinary evidence requires extraordinary claims. Now, if we look at this sort of philosophical ideas that it is possible that the laws of physics just describe things as they have traditionally been and not necessarily how they will be, that's okay. You, you can say that, and that's reasonable. It comes with a cost, though. If we open ourselves to the idea that the laws of physics are not constant, literally anything can happen anytime. And you can't ascribe any useful likelihood of any of them. So... We can't disprove miracles, but we also couldn't disprove that the universe is inside the small intestine of an incredibly large dragon. Because science 
does not prove or disprove anything. If you want proof, you have to look at mathematics, right? You can have a mathematical proof. But science, working in the physical world, merely ascribes a probability to something based on evidence. And because miracles haven't been recorded in the history of science, science says miracles are extremely unlikely. So, scientifically speaking, there is no such thing as miracles. Now, do I believe in miracles? Well, I've certainly observed the kind of made-the-bus miracles the question alluded to. And I've also experienced um, things in my life where it seems as if there is some divine agency at work in my circumstances. Now, that could be a collection of psychological biases. That could be me just interpreting data in a way that's favorable to my belief system. And I hold open that possibility. I also hold open the possibility that God is some kind of being who is aware of me and cares for me, and that my experiences through Christian spirituality mean something, that the story of Jesus really is special in some way, and that the Gospels point to something of significance, this Christ which draws all of us towards God's holiness. But that's not a scientific belief. That's a mystical belief. And, uh, That's sort of the tension I live in. Um, When I want to know facts about the physical world, I'm an empiricist. I trust the evidence. When I am dealing with mystery, with things unknown, where we came from and why we are here, when I'm trying to ascribe purpose to my existence as a human being, that's when mysticism plays a role. That's when I'm comfortable accepting unscientific beliefs on a provisional basis. Emphasis on provisional. My experiences with Jesus convince no one but me. And that means I never use my faith to influence others' behavior. I don't try to convince uh, secularists that they have to live their lives according to biblical norms, for example, because they are personal beliefs. Now, I will discuss my beliefs with anyone, and in the context of Christian community, of course we have conversations about what the Bible means for how we live. But I think it's only fair to acknowledge that those beliefs are unscientific and unempirical and you know, out of play in a secular society. I can vote based on them, I suppose, uh, but I can't expect other people to live according to my personal religious beliefs, including the fact that that on some level I do believe a miracle happened long ago, that uh, a man named Jesus rose from the dead, a thoroughly unscientific and somewhat unreasonable belief uh, that I come to through a life of knowing and experiencing God. Um, (laughs) It's probably an unsatisfying answer, but it's an honest one. And uh, the reason I do this show is so that we can have these kinds of conversations and admit to what level of certainty we really have and we don't have, I think, when we resolutely say, if you can't buy all these things, you can't be in the Christian tradition, we're encouraging a lot of people to show themselves out of the door. And I think, based on the model of the Gospels and the disciple, following Jesus is open to anyone who chooses to follow, regardless of what they believe. 
Hey, Science Mike. I have a question about Jesus and storytelling. Why do you think Jesus conveyed deep spiritual truths in the form of storytelling? And what is the science behind storytelling? Let's take this one backwards. Let's start with the science of storytelling. Storytelling is remarkable from a science perspective. Uh, Here's why. It makes us focus and it keeps us from daydreaming. And that may not sound like a big deal until you realize that daydreaming is the normal state of a human mind. Up to a third of our waking hours in life are spent daydreaming and fantasizing. Now think about your own day today. How much time did you spend imagining your circumstances as different than they are? How many times in a meeting or in a boring circumstance did you imagine something exciting? During the commute, did you picture yourself somewhere more interesting? After some embarrassing moment, uh, did you imagine a scenario of vindication? It's part of how human brains work, and it's because we build a space-time model of reality. Our brains are great at that. And because we can imagine and be aware of the past, we can also model the future or picture the past in ways different than it actually occurred. Now, when you get into a mode where you're listening to a story, something being told to you either in person or via media, the distractions fade. You stop fantasizing. When you watch The Walking Dead or read Harry Potter, you're completely present with that story. And that's because your brain reacts to stories as if it was real stimulus. You get just as angry, you weep, you laugh, and you feel actual attachment to characters. Uh, I personally was wrecked when Dumbledore died. Spoiler alert! (laughs) If you haven't read Harry Potter, I'm so sorry, but you really should have by now. That means that story changes our thinking and behavior in ways that facts alone can't. Think of it this way. You can tell someone all day about an increased statistical likelihood for cancer in the mouth, throat, and lungs in conjunction with cigarette smoking, and it does nothing to affect their behavior. But if you tell them a story about a child who was orphaned because his father smoked, uh, or if you tell a story about someone suffering later in life dramatically because of smoking, that actually has a measurable effect on motivation. And experiments have kind of bared this out. Um, researchers actually paid subjects 20 bucks and had them read a really sad, powerful story about a father and his terminally ill son. And they took blood samples before the people read the story and after. Now, at the end of the study, the subjects were given a chance to give money to a charity for terminally ill children. And guess what? <laughs> the blood samples Uh, showed spikes of oxytocin after people had read the story. Now, oxytocin is our our cuddle hormone. It's the empathy hormone. And the more people had oxytocin in their blood, the more people were likely to give to the charity in question. There's a direct correlation between how much the story moved them and how much their behavior changed. So stories actually change our brain chemistry when told well. So why did Jesus tell stories? Well, of course, Jesus was a master teacher. Uh, His teachings endure today. Thousands of years later, he is arguably the most influential teacher in human history. 
So Jesus didn't just tell us that God is forgiving. He told us the story of a prodigal son who betrayed his father and was then reunified. He didn't just say that serving other people is important. He told us the story of a rich man looking into paradise at a beggar he mistreated from the grave. He painted pictures. He made it real through story. The stories of Jesus are some of his most powerful teachings. And science backs up that Jesus' instructional methodology was quite good. If you're interested to learn more about the science of storytelling, there's a fantastic book called The Storytelling Animal, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com. Hi, Science Mike. My name is Melissa, and I'm an engineer, but I'm currently involved in more Jesus-minded work. I really miss nerd talk sometimes, so I enjoy all the work that you do. I have many questions as I look more into cosmology, quantum physics, and especially the origins of the universe. I've seen several articles written by Christians that attempt to say that a grand unified theory or theory of everything, or even just a better understanding of quantum mechanics and dark matter could provide proof for God. Is this just an extension of the God of the gaps mentality, or is the problem in how we choose to define what God is? If there is a force that caused everything to be and continues to drive the universe, is that any different from what Christians or other religions call God? Please feel free to expand or simplify however you would like. Thanks and keep up the good work. If we're talking about proving God, you have to start by asking which God. Humans don't agree on who or what God is. Uh, Think about it this way. There are atheists who lack belief in any god or gods. We call that weak atheism. There are atheists who assert that there is no god. That's strong atheism. They don't just lack belief. They actually make the fact claim there is no god. There are anti-theists, and anti-theists assert that belief in God is harmful. There are non-theists who are atheists but don't like to use the term atheism. There are agnostics who say they don't have any idea who or what God may be, but are open to the idea that God may exist. There are agnostics who say that they don't know if God is real, but they don't think anyone else can know for sure either. There are agnostics who say everyone makes too many assumptions when talking about God. There are pantheists who say that the universe itself is God. There are panentheists who say that the universe is God plus more, that the universe is a subset of God's wholeness. There are deists who say that God made the universe, but that God does not intervene in the universe anymore. There are non-theists who say that God is real, but beyond any human understanding or definition. The mystics live here. There are theists who say that God is a being with specific will, agency, and a plan for humanity. And among theists, there are many opposing ideas about God. The world's three largest religions all point towards the God of Abraham, but they disagree wildly on God's character and what his or her plan for humanity may be. 
All the world's theistic religions are subdivided into countless sects and denominations that disagree about the basics of God and God's plan for humanity, to say nothing of polytheists who believe that there are many, many gods out there. So when we say ideas in cosmology or physics leave an opening for or prove God, we have to say which God. A god of deism is not a terribly difficult or implausible cell. Any reasonable philosopher will accept arguments for deism, and many scientists will as well. It is curious and an unanswered question about how this particular configuration of the universe we call our observable universe came to be. Likewise, it's really difficult to dispute pantheism because we know the universe exists as well as we know anything. And if you're calling the universe God, then God is real. Likewise, Spinoza's God or Einstein's God, the God of nature, an unthinking, animating force, well, that's just physics. That God exists. But if we're talking about the theistic God of the Abrahamic religions, cosmology is not going to get you there. You're going to need a lot more evidence to support a claim like that scientifically. And, you know, people send me videos all the time of theologians or rabbis or uh, seminary professors or even even some scientists, you know, using the Big Bang or, or inflation or different scientific models to prove God. But they're not proving the God they say they're proving. <laughs> they're, they're making a case for deism or pantheism and then duct taping, you know, Jehovah or Allah to that explanation with no justification for how they made made up that middle ground. Uh, here's the deal. The biggest questions in life are unanswered. We, we, don't, we don't know how we got here. We certainly don't know why we're here. And here's the thing. We aren't even sure how to go about answering the most basic questions about reality. You certainly see this in theology because theology produces so many conflicting claims, but you also see it in secular philosophy. Um, we're not a, gaining significant consensus on where human consciousness comes from or how the world came to be. But even in quantum physics and cosmology, we don't have a good handle on those big questions because most of the theories that are coming forth to explain those phenomenon are not actually any more falsifiable than the information that comes out of theology or philosophy. Multiverse theory, for example, one explanation for the strange behavior of quantum particles doesn't have any experimental support or any theoretical framework for experimental support. Uh, it seems mathematically plausible, but so do conflicting theories. Huh. At some point, you kind of have to pick an operating philosophy, but hold it in an open hand. Empirically, I've got a definition for God I can defend. And I use that as my go-to definition for who God is, but it's incredibly limited. You you can catch it on my blog later this week, uh, or if you go to, to gungermusic.com and read the post for the doubters, you'll see a really early version of that axiom. And so there's that, but it's it's almost a, it's almost an Einstein's God plus a little neurology. Um, but I experience God as much more than that. So I explore God's character experientially and in Christian community through through my church through the Bible. But I understand that what I'm doing is, is, a, is a non-empirical explanation. So I hold those ideas very loosely. <laughs> 
And I trust that God and all of the greatness of whatever it is that caused the universe to be the source of all from which we all came, (laughs) that allows unfathomable atoms to organize and then ask, who am I and why am I here? I trust that the story is better than anything I can come up with, and all I'm doing is figuring out enough to enjoy the gift that this life is. So the God of the gaps, we ascribe to God what science can't explain. So science today can't really explain fundamentally gravity. It can't explain how the laws of physics achieve the particular configuration they're in that allows galaxies and universes and life to exist. You know, and you can do that. The problem is science keeps advancing. So if you if you use the God of the gaps ideas, uh, there's a real risk that something critical to how you understand God will get claimed by science and <laughs> you'll lose that belief. That's why I'm a mystic. I just admit all the time, I don't actually know very much, if anything, about God. And yet I experience God in my life. And I just hold on to that tension. I'm completely comfortable with it. And I've lost the need to solve the puzzle. That doesn't mean I'm not fascinated with the puzzle. (laughs) It doesn't mean I don't study theology. It doesn't mean I don't study science. I'm a theology nerd and a science nerd. My gosh, they call me Science Mike. But at the end of the day, I'm comfortable not knowing and trusting that the story is better than I can imagine. Hi, Science Mike. Um, I'd like to know what your thoughts are on the process of sanctification. Thank you. Sanctification uh, means to be set apart or set aside for a purpose. It's a super churchy word. If you didn't grow up in the church or weren't pretty seriously involved in the church, it probably doesn't mean anything to you. And even people who grew up in church don't know what sanctification means. Uh, The idea in Christianity generally across most denominations is that you are set aside when you're justified by Christ. Now, if I explore those terms, that's a rabbit hole. (laughs) Churches don't agree on what it means to be justified by Christ, but churches do believe there is some moment when you are justified by Christ and however their tradition interprets that. That's one thing. Then another part of sanctification in Christianity is that you are continually sanctified. You are on an ongoing basis set aside for a purpose as you follow Christ and increase in holiness as you become more like Christ and more like God. It's a beautiful idea that is completely unscientific, but there is some science to it. For example, when you believe in a loving God, it changes your brain. Uh, I talk about this all the time, mainly because it's incredibly awesome. (laughs) It rewires the way your brain functions when you believe in a loving God and you contemplate and pray to that loving God regularly. Your brain changes. It's good research. It's measurable. It's not controversial. And no one can take that away from you. Okay? When you believe in a loving, forgiving God, it makes you more forgiving. It makes it easier for you to extend grace to other people. Not only that, we understand through cognitive psychology and cognitive sciences that when we believe we can change our lives through Christ, it can actually help you find the motivation to change. 
even if there's no factual basis for the resurrection or the other spiritual themes in Christianity that so many of us worry about today. We doubt so much about the factual basis for our faith and forget about the fact that our faith is incredibly beneficial. <laughs> That's why I'm so comfortable just trusting this story of a, of a rabbi, son of a carpenter, who was the son of God and who rose from the dead. It's ridiculous. <laughs> but my experiences, my experiences make me trust the story. Pragmatically, my life can change because of Jesus. And I can follow him and be a part of the church without closing myself off to science or new insights about the world. I can both read the Gospel of Luke and On the Origin of Species. I can read Paul and A Brief History of Time. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I think there's everything right with that. So I can let Jesus work in my heart even as I contemplate the standard model of physics in my brain. Like the church, I believe I've been set aside for a purpose and that I am always growing toward that purpose. I believe that I met God on the beach for a reason so that all the other people who wonder if God is out there and if this whole Christianity thing is just some elaborate farce, those people can stop being afraid of what may happen in their lives if they're wrong or if people find out about their doubts and instead learn to live a more abundant life in Christ, even in the face of tremendous uncertainty about the modern empirical scientific basis for Christian practice and belief. I can't prove any of this stuff, but it doesn't matter. My life is the proof. My church is the proof. When Christian people express abundant love, not only to each other, but to society as a whole, that's the proof of this faith. If you want to show the world a resurrected Christ, be the person who always forgives. If you want to show the world what sanctification means, visit the sick, clothe the naked, feed the hungry. And in that process, I believe you will be sanctified. Science or no, come on in. The water's fine. I can't believe it's already been 10 episodes of Ask Science Mike. Holy cow. Thank you. Thank you for making this show. Not making this show possible. Making this show. Every question that's been submitted, every dollar that's been given, every idea that's been offered, every vote for every question, every iTunes rating, everything that's happening on this program is because of you. Thank you. This week has been overwhelming. I get so many notes from people telling me 
what this program means for them and their life and their faith and their community. I don't, I don't have words for how moving it is when you send me those messages. And I just want to say thank you for letting me be a part of your journey and a part of your life. It's all because of you. That's <laughs> why I do it. That's why we all do it together. This is an amazing community. I could not be more impressed with the thoughtfulness, the intelligence, and the quality of the listeners of this program and the community that you're creating. Guys, this is something special. I want to thank everyone who put in a question this week, especially the women. I know um, science is a nerdy guy thing, but we're changing that. (laughs) We're not only making uh, sure people know that science and faith are compatible, we are also making sure people know that science is not just for the boys. Keep your questions coming. We need at least four every week. To have an interesting program, um, and I'm, you know, we may end up increasing the length of the show. So many questions are coming in. Um, I'd actually love to hear about that. If you're interested in longer run times for Ask Science Mike, let me know. It's your show. I'm going to do it if you like it. Also, I got a lot of follow up questions after Science Mike After Dark, the 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 drugs and sex edition of Ask Science Mike. I'm going to do another one of those probably every so often we'll do a a mature themes edition. So if you have questions about sexuality or other kinds of uncomfortable questions, send them in. I'm going to cover them in an upcoming episode. Uh, You can submit a question to the show using the hashtag AskScienceMike on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. I check all of those. You can also submit a question directly on AskScienceMike.com either via your voice and recording, got a really simple interface to do that, or you can put in a text question. That's a great way to submit questions anonymously. Uh, Now, Ask Science Mike is listener-supported, so you can help create these open, honest conversations about science and faith. Uh, Every single dollar helps, and you can change or cancel a pledge at any time. People who contribute to the program get to hear the show early. They pick the questions that go on the show. They can even guarantee their own question is on, on the program and even be an executive producer. And if money is tight, I get it. I've been there. You can rate the show on iTunes or tweet or make a Facebook post about an episode you enjoy. That That's why people know the show is here. I, I don't have that much influence. It's you guys. Uh, but Ask Science Mike will always be free. Of course, there's going to be resources for every question asked on the program on AskScienceMike.com. Links to articles, links to books, all the sorts of resources that can help you dive deeper in these questions are on AskScienceMike.com. Our show is produced by the Canadian Marvel, Greg Nordine. I'm so thankful for his work. And uh, thanks to my patrons on Patreon, Patreon. I don't know how to say it. Greg's actually going to get paid this month. That's remarkable. It's not just a volunteer thing. Thank you for that. And our theme song is by my BFF, Jeb Botterford. If you have a podcast and you're looking for interesting and awesome theme music and, and, and score music, look Jeb up. Uh, both Greg and Jeb can be found on the show notes on AskScienceMike.com. Thank you so much, everybody, and I can't wait to talk to you next week. Bye.